Well, good morning. Welcome to FBN today. If you have your Bibles, please grab those and get them open to Mark chapter 5. If you do not have a Bible, there is a black one and a seat back near you. If you get to page 891, we're going to be looking at a story today in Mark chapter 5 that starts on 891 and goes to 892. So if you get to that page number, you'll be right there with us, which is where you, we want you to be. Uh, we've been studying the book of Mark as a church uh, for, for a few months now, and we're excited to continue it today, and, uh, and we're glad that you're here. If you're a guest, we're especially thankful that you're here today. Uh, we know how uh, intimidating it can be, how awkward it can be, how challenging it can be to try something new. And so uh, we, we thank you that you trusted us with this experience and you came here. And uh, if you haven't yet, we'd love for you to stop by our welcome desk on your way out and get a gift. Uh, that's just our way of saying thank you for uh, stepping outside your comfort zone and trying something new. We're so appreciative of everybody who tries that out. Uh, I'm going to ask you uh, to join me in a word of prayer and then we'll launch out in the sermon. So let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly thankful for each and every person who's here. Uh, we're so incredibly thankful for how you've worked in their lives to bring them to this moment. And we just pray now that you'll simply continue on what you've been doing. Uh, you've met us in the praise and worship of your name. You've met us in, in fellowship. You've met us in, in what, however you work to get us here. And as we open your word now and turn our attention to it, I pray that you would be the one who speaks loudest. Uh, you would be the one who speaks the clearest and you get the glory from all of this. And we pray this in Jesus' awesome and powerful name. Amen. So golf is a sport that I fell in love with at a young age. I started working at Clover Meadows Golf Course in Clover, Indiana at age 13. And uh, they didn't pay much, but one of the perks was free golf. And so uh, I decided I should take advantage of that perk, and I quickly fell in love with the game. And um, everything that I've ever learned about playing the game of golf was either I taught it to myself just through repetition or uh, my older brother had started playing a couple years before me and he kind of shared with me what he knew. Uh, I still to this day have never had a swing coach or private lesson or anything, right? And I remember uh, in, in, when I was uh, in high school and college, when I was a freshman, he was a senior. And on both, uh, both of those schools, I was able to make those teams and play one year uh, with my brother, which meant a lot to me because he's the one who taught me the game. And uh, there was a high school practice one night that I was going through something that no golfer ever wants to go through. And if you're a golfer, I'm going to give you a cringe alert right now. I'm going to use a word that is not allowed to be used on golf courses, but I had the shanks. Right? And every time I hit the ball, I would shank it. And if you don't know what a shank is, you don't, have to, you don't, don't worry. It's just a swing flaw, which is it's very minor, but it results in you hitting the ball with a portion of your club that makes the ball shoot 90 degrees right of where you're aiming it. Right? And it's just it's a horribly embarrassing shot, and it just happens. Right? It can happen to any player. There's, there's a YouTube compilation of this happening to PGA Tour players. Right? It can happen once to anybody. Uh, but the most terrifying shot in golf is your shot after the shank, right? Because if you do it a second time and then you do it a third time, then you start just questioning every life decision you've ever made, right? I've watched grown men just cave mentally and just not be able to function because they can't trust anything to swing. And there was a day, uh, freshman year of high school, this was happening and I, the thought actually came across my mind, like, I'm pretty young, like, I don't need this, right? I could just quit right now and never come back to this sport, right? I don't, I don't need this trouble in my life. And that's when my brother showed up. He's like, I, I've got just a thing. I know how to fix your swing. I was like, okay. And so he's like, set up like you're going to hit the ball. And so I did. And he goes, now untie your left shoe. What? He's like, untie your left shoe. All right? He goes, now tuck in just the right side of your shirt only. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, just trust me. And so I tucked in my right shirt. And he goes, now flip your hat backwards. Okay, you know, and he goes, then unbuckle your belt two notches, and there's a couple other things I can't remember, and then he finally, as I was doing it, he goes, now just swing. 
And I hit it, and it was a perfect shot. I looked at him like, what in the world? He's like, swing again. And I hit it again. And he goes, all your problem is mental. Like, once I got you to think about how dumb you looked, you stopped thinking about how you're going to hit a shank the next shot. And this moment struck me because for my entire life, I believed and had really good evidence for the fact that my brother was an idiot, right? And And this moment, I'm like, is he some kind of psychological genius, right? And then I carried that with me, like that burden with me for like two years. And then I watched a movie called Tin Cup, and this is a golf movie, right? And, I, and right in the middle of the movie, I watch as uh, Kevin Costner's caddy notices he has the shanks and he's like, untie your left shoe. He's like, tuck in the right side. And I was like, what? You know? And that's when I realized that my brother's not a genius. He's a plagiarist and a thief and the world made sense again, right? Like it was all, like it was, everything was great. Like everything was in balance again. And I tell you that story because we, we are studying uh, the book of Mark and I'm, I cannot be more excited about it, right? I've been really enjoying the study. I hope you have been too. And, and what I love the most about studying one of the gospels is that every single week we are confronted with Jesus, right? We come face to face with him. And, I, and to this day, there's nobody I like studying more or get to know more than Jesus Christ, right? I want to know who he is and who he isn't. I want to know what following him looks like and what it does. It. And, and if we are going to follow Jesus, that, that is how we identify ourselves as Christians, right? Followers of Jesus Christ. Then there are a couple of things that I think really need to be in place for that to matter and have significance. On the one hand, Jesus needs to show me practices that I can emulate, He needs to show me ways of life that I can actually walk in. He needs to have a character that I can strive for. And yet at the same time, on the other hand, he needs to be beyond me completely. He needs to have a power and a capacity that I don't and cannot. And there need to be aspects of him that are unpredictable and unattainable for me. And in Jesus Christ, we have the perfect blend of both. And in today's story, in Mark chapter 5, we're going to focus more on the latter. Because, and the reason why is because we've all been where I was with my brother on that driving range. Like, what are you doing? Like, what, how does this make sense? God, everything that you're doing right now makes no sense to me. Everything that you're doing is confusing me. How in the world is this going to fix my problem? I don't know why you aren't answering this prayer. I don't know why you're choosing this timing and not another. My life simply doesn't add up and I don't get it, God. If you've ever been there, and if we're honest, we all have. You ever been confused or angry or disappointed or grieving or upset or bewildered or surprised? You ever wondered why God was or was not doing something, no matter how much you prayed about it? Then my prayer today is that you simply won't miss it. That in this story, you won't miss the brilliance and mastery and power and grace of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to invite Shelby McConaughey up. She's going to be reading for us uh, Mark chapter 5, uh, verses 21 through 36. Uh, we're only going to read through verse 36 today. And if you are physically capable, would you please stand with her uh, for the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, Shelby. Okay. All right. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. 
now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years, had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus realized that power had gone from him. <clears throat> he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, who touched me? But he, but he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother teaching her anymore? Te why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. Shelby. You guys have a seat. Keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 5. We're going to do a pretty deep dive on this story uh, today. And, and, and if you were here last week, you know that we're continuing uh, the story that we began last week, right? Last week, Pastor Brandon uh, preached and he focused in on Jesus' healing of this woman who had been sick for 12 years. And I want to I want to thank him for taking on that challenge, and, and uh, those, I always enjoy those Sundays because Ephesians 4 tells us, right, we try to model our church out of the Bible around here, and Ephesians 4 says that, uh, the, that Christ himself has given the church leaders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and so that means that there should be nobody hogging ministry around here, and so all through this church, whether uh, from this stage or group leaders or ministry directors, we're going to be about development, right, we're going to give people opportunities to grow in their giftness to the Lord and chances to do ministry. Um, but I, I say all that to say this, even as one who believes clearly in that calling from God, it was really hard for me to give up that sermon last week. It's not because I don't trust Brandon, I, did, I do, and he did a great job, but because this story here in Mark chapter 5, starting verse 21 through 43, is one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. In fact, it might just be my favorite, and I hope by the end of the day you'll see why. If it's up to me, I would just literally do a two-month series on just this story alone. And so if you think I'm going too slow, don't, don't complain because I'll do it, all right? The reason why it's one of my favorite stories is some of the details that I get to preach on today. And so I'm, I'm excited, even if you're not, I'll be excited for you today, okay? But I'm fascinated, and I mean that in every sense of the word. I am fascinated with how Jesus Christ handles this entire encounter, and once the light bulb went up for me, it left me in awe of just his mastery and his presence and his pace and his purpose. And so let's set it up, right? Mark, since Mark chapter 4, uh, Jesus has been right there by the Sea of Galilee. Okay, he's been, he's been along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's been a wild trip. Uh, he starts at the beginning of Mark chapter 4. He pushes out in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, teaches a big crowd. And then at the end of that day, uh, he, he gets in a boat with his disciples to cross the sea. And if you were here, you remember like the, this huge, terrifying, violent storm comes up. And they all think they're going to die. And Jesus is napping the whole time. And he wakes up. And I'm like, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? And he just wakes up and he tells the storm, hey, storm, quit it. 
Right, just be quiet. And the storm immediately stops. And his disciples are amazed. And then they go on and they finish their journey across the sea. And Mark 5 starts with Jesus stepping out of a boat. And immediately, as soon as he gets out of a boat, this man comes running up towards him. It's not just any normal man. This is a man who's been uh, possessed by a legion of demons. And he's constantly harming himself. He's constantly attacking others. He's been isolated and outcast. And Jesus heals and delivers this man. Right? And, but he does so in a way that creates this wild scene that all the demons go into pigs and they run off a cliff and drown themselves and the whole region gets terrified. He's like, Jesus, get the heck out of here. And he's like, fine. And so he leaves and he gets in the boat and he goes and he crosses the sea again. So this is all around the Sea of Galilee and that gets us to verse 21 of Mark 5. And again, as soon as he gets out of the boat, there's a whole crowd that comes to him. And that's where in verse 22, we're introduced to a man named Jairus. And Jairus, Mark tells us, is a local synagogue leader. It's not a one-for-one comparison, but just think he was kind of like the the pastor of that area, okay? And Jairus approaches Jesus in a way that you know something is wrong. He runs up to Jesus, and he falls on his face at Jesus' feet. Now, if you've been here as we've gone through Mark, you know that, that all other religious leaders in that day, all their interactions with Jesus were confrontational, but not Jairus. He's submissive. He falls on his face and he starts begging and pleading with Jesus to come to his house. Why? Because he's a father and his little girl is dying. He's desperate. And he needs Jesus to save today. You see, Jairus, we can assume, has done everything he can to this point. He's an upper class, respectable Jewish man. He had means. You know, you know that he spent money on doctors. You know he's looked for solutions. You know he's called in favors. You know he's used his connections to get the best care he can. You know he's invited other religious leaders in to pray, and nothing has helped. And now he's desperate. And as a religious leader, he would have been under immense pressure by other religious leaders not to look like he was supporting Jesus, not to look like he was adding to the fervor or hysteria or hype around Jesus. And as a dignified Jewish male, he, he should never, ever run. He should never, ever crawl, and he should never throw himself at someone's feet. It just didn't happen. And all of that is immediately thrown out. It doesn't matter to him anymore. Because all loving parents can tell you, if you're worried about your child, then your career and the thoughts and opinions of other people and social norms, none of that holds any weight at all. And Jairus has heard stories about Jesus. He's heard stories about Jesus performing the very thing that he needs now, which is a miracle. And Jesus has the option at this point. He could have reveled in the irony of all this. Nobody has made his life more challenging and more difficult on this planet than the religious leaders of his day. And now here's one of them who needs something and he's at his feet and begging. And Jesus could have been like, look at this, guys. Look how the tables have turned. But that's not Jesus, is it? He sees Jairus and he knows this is not a teaching moment. He knows this isn't a gotcha moment and this is not a corrective moment. This is a moment that requires compassion. And so he agrees to go to his house. And that's when we see the first truth about Jesus that I want to highlight this morning. And it's this, that Jesus works at a different pace than we do. Because verse 24 tells us that that Jesus agrees to go, but there's still a pretty big problem. There's still a large crowd of people surrounding them. And, And Jairus wasn't the only person who wanted something from Jesus that day. 
If you recall, this is, this is not the first time we've seen this level of hysteria around Jesus in the book of Mark. And, and so we're told that as they're walking, the, the, the words that Mark uses is that there's a large crowd pressing against them. In Luke's account of the story, it's even more aggressive language. They're actually like shoving up against them. And I'm not going to re-preach the whole story of the woman. If you weren't here last week, I, I challenge you to go back and listen to Brandon's sermon. He did a masterful job with it. But what I want you to do is for a second to just think about what is happening in Jairus' mind and spirit at this moment. He's a desperate man who's panicked and terrified. And, he, and, and just a, a short while ago, he had no idea what to do. And then he gets word that Jesus has showed up in his town. It's the only hope he has left. And so he sets off in a dead sprint for the harbor. And he sees Jesus and he falls at his feet and he begs and pleads with Jesus to come to his house and he gets it. He gets the yes he was hoping for. Right? He finally has hope, but there's still one major enemy in front of Jairus. You know what it is? It's time. Time is the greatest enemy in Jairus' life right now because he's got to get Jesus to his house before it's too late and he knows how sick his daughter is. And so his adrenaline is already flowing, right? His heart rate is already up. His breathing is already shallow, shallow just, just from sp the sprint there. And his fear is already ratcheted up. And now they're trying to make their way, but they're just not progressing. You ever, you ever been in a hurry and get stuck behind traffic? You ever, you ever been in an emergency situation and just not been able to move forward? You ever needed to rush through a very crowded place? You, you know, don't you, the, the panic and hysteria that kind of builds up inside of you. Like, we've got to go. Jairus is looking out. He's not seeing people, right? He sees problems. He sees holdups because they have got to get to his house. And then in the middle of that, Jesus has the audacity to just simply stop. He just stops. And he won't walk anymore. And he turns around and looks at the crowd and he says, who touched me? And this is so weird and bizarre and confusing. The disciples break their silence for the first time in the chapter. Look at verse 31. His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, who touched me? You know what they're doing there? That's the disciples as respectfully as they could saying, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? There are countless people pressing in against you. There are countless people grabbing you and reaching out and touching you, and, and you, you want to ask who touched me? And this starts the part of the story that Brandon taught on last week. And again, I'm not going to rehash that for you, but the cliff notes is this, if you weren't here. Jesus knows he healed someone, and he brings everything to a halt, and he makes this, the woman that he healed come forward in front of the entire crowd and identify herself. And he sets up a scene where she has to tell her entire story. And I'm sure that everybody there was amazed. I'm sure that everybody there was, was raptured by her story, that she had their full attention, and they, at the end of the story, they were in awe of who Jesus is once again, except for one guy. Jairus is not a fan of this. I'm betting even physically he can't hold still. He's like kind of gesturing, fidgeting, moving towards the direction of his house. And yet Jesus, who knows how sick Jairus' daughter is, Jesus, who knows how desperate Jairus is, Jesus, who knows how big of an emergency this is, just doesn't seem to care. He's not in a hurry at all. In fact, he brings the whole possession to a screeching halt and has this whole side exchange with this woman. And I'm betting that Jairus at this point is just spinning out. Why are we doing this? Why, why is this taking so long? You could have healed her and then just moved on. Like, why don't you seem to be in a hurry? Why aren't we moving? Why can't you recognize what I need and give it to me? 
You ever been there? Of course you have. Because God has his own pace. Jesus has a pace and a rhythm that is not ours. I've heard it said of the Lord that he's never early and never late. I like that. I'd also add this. He's never, ever in a hurry either. And when we have desires, we want him to hurry up. We're going through trials. We want change fast. When we're going through emergencies, we want him to hurry. When we have a situation that we're tired of, we want it to go away immediately. We're like, hurry up, God. Because we've been disciplined by our society since we were little that we should get things instantly when we want them on demand. And yet God steadfastly refuses to ever work that way. And far too often, instead of seeking to understand why, Instead of trusting that he has his reasons for it, instead of believing that he's actually never early and never late, we use his slower pace as grounds to accuse him and to question him and question his character. And we wonder why he isn't being what we need in the moment. And, we, and then when the reality is, he's up to so much more than we could ever see. He's not done being remarkable in the story either. The second thing I want us to see is that Jesus calls us to things that won't directly benefit us. That goes against a lot of what you hear today, isn't it? Again, I'm not going to break down this woman's whole story, but she's been sick 12 years, spent all she had on doctors. She's lived her life as a horrible outcast. In an act of faith, she touches Jesus' clothes, hoping to be healed, and guess what? It worked. She was healed, praise the Lord. And Brandon pointed out that Jesus shows her tremendous compassion. He heals her, changes her life, calls her daughter, commends her faith, all of it, right? But that's not all he did, is it? He also then makes her do something really, really hard. You see, by making this woman identify herself, by making this woman tell her story in front of the entire crowd, he's putting her at risk. And here's the point that I want you to understand. Revealing to that whole crowd that she was the one who was healed, and reveal, especially revealing what it is she was healed of, has no benefit for this woman at all. She's already got what she asked for. She's already got the healing. She's already got everything that she could ever want. Having her tell her story to that crowd, the only possible thing it could do is make her life harder. Because in her condition, she's not supposed to be around people. She's not supposed to touch anyone. And remember, she worked her way through a very crowded area, right? She's bumped into several people, touching all of them, and then touched Jesus. And, and if you wonder why that's a big deal, you know, at this point in history, the Romans had perfected torture, but first century Jewish culture, what they had perfected was public shame. Like they were the greatest of all time at it. And Jesus has opened her up to immense public shame. And yes, he heals her. Yes, he was great to her. But he also puts her at risk and he makes her out herself. And why? Not for her. It wasn't for her. It wasn't for her benefit at all. There was somebody else there who needed to hear her story. And I point that out because we, we must realize that there will be times when God will ask us to do something hard that will not benefit us directly. There'll be times when God asks us to go through a trial or a challenge that we will not be the beneficiaries of, and we must, instead of push back against that, we must have the faith and trust to do as he leads because he knows exactly what he's doing. And I want to read for you a verse that you might have missed the significance of. Because in the, in, in the beginning of it, there, there's this time stamp that, that at first reads sort of like a transition piece. Like, like, we're done with the woman now and we can go back to Jairus. But that's not the reality. 
in reality, explains everything that Jesus has done up to this point. Let's look at verse 35 of Mark chapter 5. It says, while he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? You see, after this big holdup, Jairus hears the news of every parent's worst nightmare. His last ditch effort, right? This this Hail Mary of of getting Jesus to his house turned out like all the rest of his other efforts. It was too little, too late, and not in time. And now his little girl is gone. And so I want you to imagine the, the dread and horror that, that's building up in his soul at this point as he transitions from panic and anxiety and fear to shock and grief. But see, that's not the part of the verse that's illuminating to me. I want you to look again how verse 35 starts. It says, while he was still speaking. Who? While Jesus is still speaking to this woman that he's healed. And I want you to remember that, and then I need you to, to transport yourself back to first century times, in which there were no phones, no email, and no texting, right? There, there was no social media of any kind. There's no way that you could send a message. The only way that they had to send a message was how? By actually sending a human messenger. And so I, I need you to think about the, the, the amount of time that has to pass. First, Jairus' daughter has to die. And all those who are around her would need a moment to react to this devastating news. And then somebody would say, somebody's got to let Jairus know. And this would be a terrible job. Think about you are the one that has to go find this man and tell him his daughter is dead. But regardless, it needs to be done. And so either someone volunteers or someone's chosen and they leave the house and they take off on foot and they go towards the port where it's the last place they knew he was headed. And who knows how far they've gotten, who knows how long the messenger looked, but at some point he sees a large crowd and assumes, I'm betting Jesus is around that crowd. And I know Jairus is going there to find Jesus. And he gets there and sure enough, he finds Jairus close to Jesus. And then they tell Jairus the news, your daughter's dead. Don't bother him anymore. Now, why do you think that's significant? Do you understand why all that time is significant? This means that while Jairus was looking for Jesus, his daughter died. It means that when he found Jesus, his daughter was already dead. Only Jairus doesn't know that. But guess who did? And I want you to look at Jesus' mastery of the situation. To, to notice the care and compassion he had for this father. He agrees to go with Jairus. And they start working their way through the crowd towards the house. And Jesus knows this man's daughter is already dead. And he knows that in just a few moments, there are going to be people coming to tell Jairus that the most awful news he's ever heard. And so he stops. And he turns around and says, somebody touched me. I felt power leave me. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? He's like, no, no, somebody touched me. And this woman comes trembling before him. And he works in a way that makes the woman tell her entire story. And see if you notice the parallels. There was nothing anybody could do. No doctor could help. I spent all the money I had. No religious leader could help. Nobody could help me at all until I simply touched the edge of Jesus' clothes and I was healed immediately. What nobody else could do What was impossible for everyone else, this Jesus did in a moment. And he creates this entire scene. Why? So he could say the most remarkable sentence that's ever been said to a grieving father. Look at verse 36. When Jesus overheard what was said, so he hears the messengers tell Jairus his daughter is dead, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid. 
Only believe. Don't be afraid. His, his little girl has died. I'd, I'd say he has plenty to fear, don't you? Just believe. Believe what, what, what possibly could Jairus believe in at that moment? He tried everything. Jesus was his last desperate Hail Mary, and, and, and that was too late. Well, what he could believe in is what he just saw with his own two eyes. What he could believe in was what he just heard with his own ears. A woman whose situation was so desperate it left her broke, left her an outcast. No one has a solution. And then Jesus comes. And that same Jesus is now looking Jairus in his grief-stricken eyes. And what Jairus sees looking back at him is this combination of peace and confidence. Don't be afraid, Jairus. Only believe. Now maybe he couldn't think clearly and it was desperation. Maybe he didn't have anything to lose. Maybe, maybe he has, what's he got left, right? Or maybe he listened to Jesus. Maybe it was faith. Maybe he did believe, but, but for whatever reason, for Jairus, Jesus' voice is louder than the messenger's. He doesn't stop bothering the teacher. He continues to bring Jesus to his house. And what he gets to see is that if we truly follow Jesus, we will come to see how awesome he is. I cannot shake this question as I think of this story. What if Jairus didn't follow? What if Jairus, in his panic, gave up looking for Jesus after a few minutes? What if he was so confused and so offended by the fact that they were stopping that he, he didn't even listen to the woman's story? So when Jesus says, just believe, he'd have nothing to believe in. Or what if, even worse, in his impatience and fear and need for control, he just got tired of waiting on Jesus and he took off running on ahead? Well, if he'd have done that, he would have either encountered the messengers or arrived home to the worst news a parent could ever hear, only this time he wouldn't have Jesus by his side. This time it would have just been him and his ability to deal with that news, and, and it would have been completely and utterly hopeless. But thank God Jairus didn't do that. You see, the great invitation from Jesus to us as human beings is this. It's simple but profound. Follow me, he says. Follow me. That means that he's out in front. That means that he's setting the course, and it means that he's setting the pace. We simply follow. And it's so important that we remember that because every day we're going to be tempted to take back control. Every single day, you're going to be tempted to get out in front of Jesus. Every single day, you're going to feel that pull to, to get impatient or hurried or in a rush because Jesus' pace is always slower than ours. Every good thing in life takes time. Transformation, sanctification, life change, spiritual growth, this takes an immense amount of time. Relationships that give life take an immense amount of time. Discipleship takes an immense amount of time. Any suffering that God allows in our lives, he promises in his word that he's going to use that suffering for our purposes and our benefit to make us more like him. But guess what? The changes from that suffering, the lessons from that suffering, the transformation of that suffering always take more time than we want. Because we want things in an instant. What we want more than anything is ease and comfort. God, take the suffering away now. Lord, make my child a devoted follower of Jesus with, with no doubts or worrisome habits like now. Like fix my marriage yesterday. God, God, show up and change this situation immediately. God, I've, I've asked forgiveness for this sin, so I never want to feel the temptation to pull to do it again. But that's not how it works, is it? 
That's never how it works. And when his timing doesn't match ours, and it never does, we feel this really strong pull to take over. After all, God only helps those who help themselves is a lie we tell ourselves as we wrestle back control from an unpredictable master. And if you're there, and we've all been there, but if you're there this morning, there's two things that I want you to do today. And the first is simply just take a moment to consider these passages in the scriptures. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as, high as, he- for as, as heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's God saying that the, the planes that I am operating on, the thoughts that I'm having, the things that I'm doing are so far beyond you and above you, you can never grasp them. Jesus puts it even clearer to Peter in John 13. He says, what I'm doing, you don't realize now, but afterward, you understand. You see, in our walk with God, we must allow him the space to do things that we don't understand and cannot grasp in the moment. He reserves that right at all times. And in those times, right, it would be really wise of us to fight and resist ever questioning his character. And the second thing, if you're in a season you don't understand this one, the second thing I want you to do is just to take a long look at the story and do not miss the mastery of our Savior. There's a desperate woman down to her last penny who had no hope. There's a panicked father at the end of his rope about to lose his baby girl. And Jesus didn't just heal the woman, right? And he doesn't just raise this little girl from the dead. That's a spoiler alert for next Sunday, Okay. He doesn't just give them what they asked for. That would have been enough, right? If he just said, you're a healed woman, and this girl, you're back to life, done. And they could have been, they would have praised his name. Instead, what he does is he does it in a way that gave each person involved exactly what they needed at the exact moment they needed it. This woman didn't just need healing. She needed the bravery to tell her story after 12 years as an outcast. She needed in front of an entire crowd of people to be called daughter by Jesus and committed for her faith. Jairus needed to hear every last detail of her story and to see how much it paralleled his. He needed Jesus to look him in the eye at the worst moment of his life and be told, don't be afraid, only believe what you just saw. See, he gave so much more than the miracles. Because when our God goes to work, he doesn't just work on our bodies, he doesn't just work in the physical world, he works on our hearts and he works on our souls and he works on our minds, which is why his timing is, and I mean this word, his timing is perfect. It's why his ways, no matter how confusing or maddening or impossible to figure out in the moment, are exactly what we need. Because he loves us in ways that far exceed how much we even love ourselves. And so whatever it is this morning in your life that is tempting you to question the character of God, it's tempting you to question his timing, his goodness, I, I want you to take that to the Lord today. And I'll challenge you with this. Just remember what Jairus must have been thinking when they stopped. Lay down those fears. Lay down those worries. Lay down your doubts. Lay down your questions. Just surrender them to the grace of our unpredictable master and declare your trust in him. For the rest of us, right, I want us to just take a moment. If we're not there, we'll be there in short order, I promise you. But let's just take a moment to be in awe of a God who loves you like that. 
A God who's so far beyond us. A God who's, whose mastery is so amazing. A God who's unpredictably is, is, is always for our good. And surrender all of ourselves and all of our lives and all of our trust to him. I'm going to close this time by, by giving you the opportunity to just do those very things. We give you a chance to spend some time in prayer with the Lord, wrestling with things. And, and there's two, there's three really groups of people that I really want to, to focus on this morning. The first is that anybody here who's been tempted to question the character of God. If there's something in your life that you just don't understand. There's something in your life that you just can't make sense of. And I pray you'll see in the story just the mastery of his sovereignty. You'll see that when he's working, you won't always get it but he's working on your behalf at all times. He's proven this in the cross. That's that passage in Romans. God has proven his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The second group I want to challenge is those of you who are, who've been really wrestling with God's timing. God, this doesn't make sense why this is happening so slow. This doesn't make sense why I'm waiting on this. It doesn't make sense why this occurred so fast. What, will you just lay down all your questions this morning? We trust the one whose ways are higher than your ways and whose thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And anybody, anybody who's not in those places today, can I just invite you to be in awe of the God who loves us like that, whose mastery is at that level, whose grace abounds at all times. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, then let today be your day of salvation. Just surrender and trust in him now. But this, this time, these moments are for you and him. Please take advantage of them.